Get Rich Education is brought to you by Valhalla Wealth and Ridge Lending Group. You're listening to the show that has created more passive income for people than nearly any show in the world. This is the powerful Get Rich Education. Welcome to GRE. This is Keith Weinhold, and this is Get Rich Education, episode 172. With millions of listener downloads in 188 world nations, you are in the land of financially free beats debt-free. And I'm so glad that you're here. When you think about your real estate portfolio, yeah, you're thinking in terms of your properties for sure, but there's something even more important than your property, and that is your market selection. Today, we're going to talk with one of the most prominent real estate developers in the United States about how he selects a market. And this is a professional that makes his living on getting that market choice just right. And he's a really good teacher, too. He's been a faculty member on the prestigious Real Estate Guys Investor Summit at Sea and elsewhere. Now, interestingly, he has the knowledge, confidence, and connections to buy property in a bad neighborhood. Yes, he will sometimes specifically buy in a bad neighborhood. And yes, I just told you that he makes his living buying and developing. So we're going to unpack that paradox for you today. He basically has the power to change the character of a neighborhood. You know what is perhaps the biggest mistake that real estate investors make today? And that is the fact that they will only invest in one market. That's such a mistake. In fact, it's so important to get real estate markets right that I have left my Anchorage, Alaska hometown, and I am here in Florida today to specifically investigate real estate investing markets. I'm actually in North Florida now between Jacksonville and Orlando. Tomorrow, I'll be visiting the Jacksonville real estate market, and then in a few days, it will be Orlando. Now, as far as residential real estate goes, the economic vitality and diversity is number one in what makes a sound real estate investment market. Now, just because the economy is sound in your market today, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be in a few years. We don't want to revert to what psychologists call the recency bias. The recency bias, at least applied here, that basically just means that, well, just because things have been good today and recently, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to continue to be good tomorrow. Now, if you're invested in a larger metro, that's generally, just generally better than investing in a smaller metro. That's why we haven't featured real estate providers in a town of 30,000 people here on the show. For example, when the price of a barrel of oil was essentially slashed in half three years ago, Houston, Texas wasn't nearly as affected as parts of North Dakota and Alaska were because Houston is better diversified. They're one of the top five U.S. metros by population, and they could better weather that storm. So it's mostly about the local economy for real estate investment. But it isn't all about economy, even for residential. For example, a few years ago, when Arizona decided that they were going to police illegal immigrants differently, well, that had some unforeseen effects on Class C residential investors in Phoenix. All right. Now, what about markets that are partially propped up by injections of foreign money? And then that city, like a Vancouver, B.C., 
What if they put a steep tax on foreign investment dollars? Do you think that can slow the cash influx and change the investment landscape there? Well, of course it can. So see, that is not a direct function of the vitality of the job market in the economy either. What if a jurisdiction that you're in introduces rent control? Oh, no. I mean, if you're invested in that market, do you think that could limit what future investors would be willing to pay for a property like yours if they know that there's now a ceiling on what they can charge for rents? Of course there is. And you have more rent control in a lot of northeastern and coastal California markets, and we generally avoid those markets. So this is why, as an investor, you need to be in multiple geographic markets. If you're only in one market, then your income stream is more fragile, and this is exactly why. Just look at what happened in my hometown of Anchorage, Alaska, which I'm 5,000 miles from today. I've owned a substantial rental portfolio up there for 15 years. Well, when oil went down, nearly everything went down. My rent amount went down substantially. My occupancy went down, although only a little, and my vacancy went up a little. Asset prices went down too. And of course, utility and labor costs just continue to rise with inflation. They didn't go down. Well, see, that would have put a real pinch on me as an investor if I were only in that market instead of the multiple markets like I am. You're going to learn from a prominent United States real estate developer that not only studies and knows markets, but has the power to change markets right after this. MC Laubscher is the host of the top-rated business and investing podcast, Cashflow Ninja, and also the president and chief wealth strategist of Valhalla Wealth. They help busy people build wealth outside of Wall Street by strategically combining their clients' cash flow statements with the financial vehicle of the wealthy, according to the infinite banking concept. If you are interested to learn how to perpetually multiply your wealth, you can access an exclusive webinar at Your Own Banking System. Cashflow real estate investors, if you're looking for a mortgage loan with a company that specializes in investment property loans, it's Ridge Lending Group. They provide income property loans in almost every U.S. state. Ridge has worked with tens of thousands of investors and homeowners all over the country. In fact, with ethics and transparency, they've helped more people realize their dreams through real estate investing than any other mortgage lender in the country. Get started at RidgeLendingGroup.com. This is Frank Gallinelli. To grow your wealth, listen to Get Rich Education with Keith Weinel. Today's guest professional life has transitioned from Silicon Valley to real estate. In fact, he's focused the past 10 years of his professional life on real estate investment and for him, this started locally in Canada. He's based in Ottawa, Canada, and he is now the VP of the Ottawa Real Estate Investors Organization. His investing activity quickly moved into U.S. markets as the opportunities for great investments just continued to present themselves here in the U.S. So it was a real right-hand turn in his career after he spent the first 25 years in the high-tech industry. And he's got what I call big picture vision. He is not a small thinker. He has conducted business in over 15 countries. He's been awarded patents. He's forged numerous partnerships. He's raised capital. He's acquired businesses. He's negotiated deals and he's led numerous organizations. And, you know, I love it when we talk because I always learn something that I didn't know before. Welcome back to Get Rich Education, Victor Manesh. Keith, great to be here. 
Hey, it's so good to have you back, Victor, because we're going to talk about something really important today, and that is market selection. You know, Victor, when someone has never invested in real estate before, or maybe they've just begun investing in real estate, I think that they think from the bottom up and they think about a property first. For example, that person that's interested in real estate investing, they might drive past this pretty yellow duplex on their way to work every day. And boy, since we're seeing this thing twice a day round trip, they always think, oh, it's a pretty building and it's nicely landscaped. And boy, because it's right here on my commute route, I could just go ahead and easily manage that myself. Well, then maybe when an investor is a little bit more seasoned, they're thinking a bit differently. They're thinking, well, now they've invested in real estate. So if it cash flows, well, then I'll go ahead and buy it if it cash flows. But actually, that's not even enough because even if a property provides cash flow today, we don't know if there's a real durability of the income stream there. And the durability of the income stream comes from the market, the geographic market that that property's in. So just with that in mind, just tell us a bit more about the importance of market selection and how you're really starting from a top-down fashion when you begin with market selection. Well, I think the first thing to do is to take us away from the world of real estate investing because oftentimes in the world of real estate, we get wrapped around things like market comps and things like that. I'd rather bump up a level and go to the fundamentals of economics. Economics 101, where we're satisfying the laws of supply and demand. When you satisfy those laws of supply and demand, then you really have a shot at making a sustainable business. When I talk about that, what I really mean is, are you in a market where there's influx of population, influx of jobs, are incomes increasing? You know, there's markets that have been shrinking for years. The poster child for that is Detroit, where it's lost over half of its population since the 1970s. There's a reason you can buy houses there for below construction cost because people are continuing to leave that market. And yes, you can buy something that looks inexpensive. And yes, it'll probably cash flow because you bought it so cheap, but it's still a shrinking market. Now, some people like markets like that. I personally don't. I want to be in a situation where the demand exceeds supply, where there's growth, because then that drives investment, drives investment in multiple different asset classes. And I always want to satisfy those laws of supply and demand. Right. So there are those laws of supply and demand. And you know what's interesting, Victor? I mean, I am in a market where I am today, Anchorage, Alaska, where someone could have bought a fourplex building five years ago and it created cash flow for them on that day. But now that investor is likely cash flow negative. And that's because the economy here in a place like Anchorage, you mentioned Detroit as well, but here in Anchorage, the economy is not very diversified. When the price of a barrel of oil was basically cut in half starting about three or three and a half years ago, jobs evaporated and sort of goes beyond just the tenant that you serve. For example, I do a lot of Class C stuff in Anchorage, and I cater to maybe people that cut hair or people that serve food. Well, when oil workers got laid off, I don't cater to oil workers, but there's a trickle-down effect because now those higher-income oil workers, when that family leaves the state because they don't have a job anymore, now there are fewer people to get their hair cut and fewer people to dine in restaurants, and that's who I cater to. So the trickle-down effect really hurt me. So times it goes beyond just the tenants' jobs that you have. It's like, what are supporting those jobs? What are those primary market drivers that secondary or tertiary jobs are dependent upon? So I really think it starts with looking at those primary market drivers in a particular geographic market. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at the cities in America that are growing today, they're often in the south, 
Think about Dallas. Think about Charlotte, North Carolina. Phoenix is growing again. There's a lot of communities in the Sun Belt that are experiencing population growth. And some of it's for demographic reasons. You know, cities like Phoenix, very large retirement community. You get other communities like Charlotte and Dallas. They're really all about business and business growth. You want to look at what's driving the market and focus on on satisfying that need. People want warmth. And that's something that just a few generations ago, yeah, they really couldn't go out and get. Society wasn't nearly as mobile. The advent of air conditioning and a lot of other things have made it a lot more palatable for people to live in southern climates. So people are increasingly being enticed to move south. However, that person still needs to have a job. So what are really the job market sectors that you see as sustainable? For example, some people think that fossil fuel jobs really are not here to stay. And you listen to other people talk and they talk about how really petroleum products are still so energy dense that they're going to be there for a while. So how much weight do you put into sustainability when there's a metro that's heavily concentrated in oil and gas? Or you just look for bigger size metros where you do have a greater diversity of an economy in a bigger metro. What do you look for? Well, I'm looking for those primary drivers of jobs like you talked about. If it's oil and gas related, you know, the oil and gas industry is cyclical and it has often to do with short-term imbalances between supply and demand. And that drives price on a much larger basis than you would think it should. But unfortunately, it does. So, you know, we've gone from $100, $114 a barrel down to, you know, the low 40s at the bottom. Uh, that's, that's a dramatic, dramatic shift. There are sectors of the economy that are energy related that are not necessarily tied to the price of oil. So, for example, if you're building derivative products, maybe if you're building plastics that uses oil as its input, but it's a derivative market. It's not tied specifically to the price of oil. When we talk about oil and gas, we're typically talking about exploration, production, and there's other segments of the of the industry like distribution, refining, and so on that are not tied to the price of oil because they're really just tied to the consumer end. The demand side isn't changing dramatically year over year. That's right. That sector has more beyond it than just drill bits and gravel pads. And yes, there are secondary industries. That's really important. What are some of the other things that you look for in a metro? I mean, is size important? Like, what is the importance of size and going ahead and getting a diversity of an economy with a larger metro versus a smaller one? Talk to us about that. There's different segments in each market. So, for example, if your thing is, let's say, senior housing, uh, you may find that senior housing is overbuilt in a lot of primary markets. You've had a lot of national players building in anticipation of the baby boomers coming into retirement. Frankly, they're a little bit early because the baby boomers, on average, are not 85 years old yet. They're too young to enter retirement residence. If you look in many secondary and tertiary markets, they're often underbuilt. So if you're in the senior housing sector, you may, in fact, look at secondary and tertiary markets. You may not look at primary markets. If, on the other hand, you're just building multifamily housing, you want to look at the job situation. Uh, so it really depends on what it is that you're trying to build. If you want to build, say, medical office, you want to look at the makeup of the medical office space in that community. But do you have a lot of the national players that have come in? Have they transitioned to the urgent care model to take pressure off the emergency rooms? You know, all the different things, all the different shifts that are underway. So it's not just about looking at the market. It's looking at what is the need for that particular product in that market. I think there's an opportunity coming. It's a little early still, but there will be an opportunity 
to eventually down the road buy shopping malls that have gone into foreclosure because there there will be a bunch that will. When you have major retailers like Sears, JCPenney, Kmart shrinking, you're going to start to see malls fall into foreclosure. There may be opportunities to buy very large parcels of land and redevelop those potentially for residential. They'll be well situated in the core of the city. Land assemblies are very difficult to do if you're trying to put land back together. But if you can acquire a large parcel and buy it for pennies on the dollar, maybe there's an opportunity there. So it's really about matching up use type with needs. And yeah, it's about that flexibility that use type might change. Some say that malls are dying. I think it's pretty easy to say that in a retail perspective, a lot of malls are dying. But other malls find ways to reinvent that space and maybe where a retail store used to be. Now you have indoor paint mall or now you have an indoor archery range. So it can really be about the creativity and utilizing a, a certain asset that's already there and just using it in a different way. Well, that's right. But in particular, when it comes down to office and retail, it's really all about dollars per square foot. Yes, you can repurpose something and you can give something a another lease on life. But, you know, if that property was getting $30 a square foot as retail space, I can tell you it's not going to get $30 a square foot as an archery range. There just isn't the income stream to support that. So it's, again, back to the laws of supply and demand. When I look at, for example, a lot of office markets, we're seeing some major, major trends. We're seeing the traditional office is starting to disappear. It's a lot of people these days that have a home office and they telecommute. Or if they have an office, let's say at the head office, it's often a cubicle that is not their personal cubicle. It's maybe hotel space that they can use for half a day if they need to, to come into the office. But most of the time they're working from home. That's very much an increasing trend. In fact, we've even seen in the past week that uh, Brookfield, which is one of the largest commercial landlords, just bought Regis. And Regis is a company that specializes in temporary office space, co-working type space. So there are some real uh, shifts going on in business. And I think we're going to start to see a lot of the traditional office space get reconfigured. Again, think about medical office space. The traditional uh, sole practitioner, the single doctor with his receptionist out front, That's a thing of the past. You know, when that person retires, nobody's going to take over that office. It's going to have to be assembled with some other office space, and that other office space will have to be reconfigured maybe into a larger clinic or something like that in order for it to fit today's business model. There's some major shifts going on even in, in the office world. Yeah, there are, and it's really interesting. And staying on top of trends really helps a person be a better investor, but how does someone, an everyday person, an everyday investor, take this sort of knowledge and exploit an opportunity for themselves? It's really a boots-on-the-ground type exercise. You need to figure out for the specific market, for the specific product type that you are after, what's the local situation. Real estate is a hyper-local business. You might talk about general trend, like let's say student housing, but it's irrelevant. you got to look at what is the supply-demand situation within walking distance of a particular campus. You've got to really look at things at a very local level, uh, and you've got to talk to the architects, talk to the urban planners, talk to the people in the planning department. They will give you a wealth of information. Don't be scared to call them up and just ask them questions. You would be surprised how much they will share with you. They'll even tell you about other applications that are in front of the zoning board. That's great information. For example, I know a lot of people that build student housing in Philadelphia around Temple University. 
they didn't know the university was going to be opening a brand new residence facility with 1,200 beds. It's a lot of product to inject in the market overnight. Today, around Temple University, I would say there's a surplus of student housing. Now, we own student housing in the shadow of Temple. We're doing well, but I know a lot of people who aren't because there's an oversupply. So be very aware of what's going on in the marketplace and talk to the people that are really on the ground doing the work on a day-to-day basis. That's how you'll find out. Because you and I have talked before, Victor, about how a lot of people, when they go ahead and do their market research, they just think that, that Google is going to give them every answer. And that certainly will give them help and that'll give them a framework. And, you know, that really gives them an idea for what problems need to be solved. For example, lack of student housing at Temple or a lack of senior housing in a tertiary market. But, you know, if you just go ahead and do the research, you're not really digging in and solving problems. So I guess for the everyday person, how can they best break through that and stop just doing research on Google and sort of talk with the movers and shakers, with the people that make a difference, and find out how they can solve a problem to meet a need? Well, I'll give you a very concrete example. We're developing a senior housing facility in Louisiana, And when we look at strictly the demographic data, we talked with an analyst who did a market analysis, and he said, no, there's no need for senior housing in this particular market. And we kind of scratched our head, and we talked with a number of brokers locally on the ground who were basically crying and saying, we need senior housing, we need senior housing. And in fact, there's another facility in that market that is expanding. So we basically did a boots on the ground bit of market research. Literally, we posed as potential clients and went from one facility to the next, to the next, to the next, in a span over a couple of days, visited, I think, seven or eight different facilities to get a sense for how they operate. Did they have space? Is this a place that I would be happy to put my grandmother in? Those types of questions. And we found out as a result of that, that not only was the product in the marketplace substandard, We felt that by introducing a new product with a different product concept, we could, in fact, outcompete the existing product. So it wasn't just a matter of looking at the demographics. It was looking at where the market demand was and was that demand really being satisfied. You're not going to get that from Google. You have to get out from behind your desk and go talk to people. That's how you do it. Yeah, now that right there, that is really invasive. I mean, that is getting up out of your wheeled, swiveling chair and going out and getting into those facilities, getting into a senior facility and finding out, is the lighting adequate? Are there signs here that there's good sanitation and that people are adequately fed? Is there good ventilation? Is the footage organized and livable for people? I mean, yeah, those are the type of insights that you're just not going to get from Google. You are not, absolutely. There's a lot you can get. If you're trying to figure out what inventory is in the market, let's say, for office space, you can often go on LoopNet or CoStar and see what's out there. And you'll get a sense for it. You'll see how much of it, how big the office space is available. Are these 10-year leases or is it a sublet type situation? There's a lot of information you can get from Google, but that's more of a due diligence type exercise. If you're really putting together a strategy and and you want to do a stream of investment in a particular area to solve a very specific market need, you have to get out from behind your desk and talk to people. You really do. It's only by getting to talking to people that you will find out whether your idea is valid. I'll give you a simple example. You know, one of our strategies is a strategy that you and I have talked about before. We call it buy on the line, move the line. Right. What does that mean? Every city in America has that line 
where on one side of the line, you've got a very hot, gentrified neighborhood. And then on the other side of the line, you've got a, an area that's pretty rough. And oftentimes, as long as that line isn't on a municipal boundary or a school district, oftentimes that line is completely arbitrary. It's movable. So what we often do is we'll buy just on the wrong side of that line, redevelop, put new product that is in keeping with the hot neighborhood next door, and now we've moved the line. But unless we actually get on the ground and talk to people, we could be making an assumption that people are willing to pay the prices of the hot neighborhood, even though it's not in the hot neighborhood. Unless you can actually talk to people and validate that assumption, you might be making a big mistake. So you got to go from behind your desk and say, well, if I offered you the exact same two-bedroom apartment that you can get a block away for $200 less a month, would you be interested? And if they say yes, you run your numbers and you say, okay, well, this makes sense because I bought the land for 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah, that is a great point. So what you're actually doing is a bit counterintuitive to people. You're actually buying in a bad neighborhood, but you're strategically buying in a bad neighborhood that's sort of right on that line of where a place is already gentrified and better developed, and you are going ahead and geographically moving that line. So now that what you've recently purchased is on the good side and is no longer a bad neighborhood. Exactly, and you can create tremendous value that way. And let me share with you at least a couple of different formulas that we have used. This is not cut and dry, but at least some rules of thumb that we've used that at a first indication will tell us that whether we have something that has potential. So if you can buy land where the land cost is going to be less than 10% of your finished product, is a pretty good indication that you're going to be able to make some pretty decent money. If your cost of construction is going to be around 100 $110 a square foot, which you can pretty much do in most areas of the country, probably quite a bit more up in Anchorage, Alaska, because your cost of material costs are so much higher up there because your transportation costs are high. But in most areas of the country, you can build for $110 a square foot, let's say. And if the finished product is going to sell for north of $220 a square foot, you can be pretty certain that you're going to make money. And when I say make money, I'm talking about 25, 30% net profit margin. So those are the types of things that I look for. Am I going to be able to build for 110 a square? Am I going to be able to buy the land for less than 10% of the finished product? Those are both true. And I can sell for north of $220, $230 a square foot. I already know I'm going to make money. I already know that. I don't have to go get any comps. That's an interesting rule of thumb that I did not know about previously. So it's really about skating to where the hockey puck is going, finding an opportunity. Whether you're a developer like Victor or whether you're an individual investor, you want to find out where those opportunities are. You want to find out where those up-and-coming places are before they have gone ahead and come up. And what's interesting, you know, a lot of people are like, well, how do I get the right information? How do I target the right person? And you're talking about how you have gotten away from your desk and put boots on the ground. How do you target the right person? You can go find them face-to-face. How is that Absolutely. for specific target marketing? And, you know, Victor, this is kind of an unusual thing to do here. We're in an audio-only medium, but I'm kind of holding up my phone right now, my iPhone with all of its flashy icons. We're all living in a Jetsons world, 
and there's a great deal of efficiency in things that we can do with cloud computing and with our phone. We're living in a Jetsons world. But if you will get off your butt and get into the Flintstones world also that most people have just forgotten about or aren't even getting into anymore, it's incredible how you can sort of target market and get this information that no one else can get. You don't have to necessarily get out from behind your desk all the time. I'll give you a simple example. We were holding a meeting with the folks in the planning department in the city of Arlington. And these are folks that I actually have physically gone to the office in the planning department and I've met with them before a couple of times, but we wanted to have a follow-up meeting. So what we did is we had one of the members of our team who also happens to be a local realtor in Texas physically go to the planning office and we actually had a conference call together. She was in the room and the rest of us were tied in over the phone. We had a very productive session, ton of very useful information simply by setting up that meeting. And it doesn't mean everybody has to be in the room, but oftentimes if you're trying to do something that's not in your local market, get one of your local team members to be that boots on the ground person, to be the person in the room, and then you tie in the rest over the phone. And it works. You don't have to overthink it. Yeah, and some might think, well, I don't know, what would someone like the planning department in the city of Arlington, Texas, why would they care about me or why would they want to hear from me? Well, you're there to basically help solve their problems. That's what entrepreneurs do. They solve problems, meet needs, and you're providing housing for that city's residents. Exactly. And, you know, they will tell us, say, well, here's what we think we're going to build. And they will say, well, if you're east of this road here, that, that you're probably not going to get a lot of support for that particular idea. But if you're west of this other location, you'll probably get a lot of support both from the planning department and from city council. So you get a lot of insight from just hearing directly from the folks that are doing this day in, day out, what's going to get support, what the city wants to see. And oftentimes there are going to be incentives in place. Maybe it's a tax abatement. Maybe it's some other form of help. Maybe it's a, a variance on the zoning to get higher density. There's different things that you can do that will allow you to create value that, again, you're just never going to get that information by looking to Google for answers. Yeah, because real estate is hyper-local. Yeah, there are local regulations and local key players to meet. And, yeah, you just can't necessarily do every bit of that remotely, but you can do some remotely. So are there any particular websites or resources that you like when you're going ahead and looking at market selection, when you want to find an opportunity, when you want to serve a need? Honestly, I use websites primarily for due diligence. When it comes to developing opportunities in a marketplace, it's 100% relationship-based. It's from talking to people who say, hey, Victor, I'm working on this. I think there's a problem here. Would you be interested in helping me out on it? That's typically how that conversation goes. Yeah, it's interesting. Unlike the stock and the equities world, real estate is a people business. Even today with living in a Jetsons world, you know what? Behind every contract that's drafted and behind every check that's written, there is still a human being's name behind that. Absolutely. And there's a lot of moving parts in a real estate business, regardless what you're doing. Even if you're, if you're doing fix and flip, if you're doing buy and hold, if you're doing build and hold, whatever it is that you're doing, there's a lot of moving parts. And you're going to need a lot of people in your team. And it's rare that somebody unless they're really well-established, has a fully built-out team with all of the different functions firing on all cylinders. You know, do they have property management in-house? Do they have construction management in-house? Um, do they have the ability to raise unlimited capital, et cetera, et cetera? 
if you're missing one of those things or if you need help in some of those things, you often end up having to partner with folks who can help you in those areas where you're weak. My specialty is raising capital. So a lot of people approach me with opportunities because if they're not specialists at raising capital, I can help them. And so oftentimes I get approached with deals all the time. I'm, I must see, I don't know, five or six a week. Now, I'm obviously not executing on that many because I, I simply cannot, but it gives me the opportunity to be very selective and go after the best opportunities. And so that's what I do. So there you go. If you know of a deal or if you know of an opportunity, but you're looking for investors, Victor might be able to connect you that way. So, Victor, just sort of winding down, wrapping up, are there really any other big picture or small picture things that people ought to know about market selection? Because that's so key. Your market and your management are often more important than the property itself. What should someone keep in mind? Oftentimes, people talk about price. And I want to distinguish between price and value. We often use those words interchangeably, and they mean something completely different. So when you look at what's driving price in a market, there are often four different factors. And we often put them together in a blender and mix them up, and it's very difficult to distinguish what are the factors that are driving price. So let me take a moment and unpack that, because I think it's vitally important to understand the difference of uh, the different drivers of price. Number one is if you're in a market that is at least holding its own, it's at least maintaining population or it's growing, the cost of construction is going to essentially set the floor of what the prices are going to be because people are not going to build new product and lose money. So construction cost is going to essentially set the floor price for whatever is going on in the market. The second thing that will come into play is the availability of money. You know, when back in 2008, we didn't have a real estate crisis per se. We had a money crisis. Right. And so when that liquidity, when you couldn't go out and get a loan easily in 2009, 2010, the only buyers were cash buyers. That depressed prices because the availability of easy money it just disappeared. Now, it's gotten much easier to get money today, and we're seeing that in appreciating prices. Have properties gone up in value? I don't know. I would say they've certainly people are willing to pay more because of the availability of relatively inexpensive money. I mean, today's interest rates, money's almost free. So people are borrowing uh, to the limit of their ability and to the limit of whatever the, the banks will lend them. So availability of money is a second key factor. That's right. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. You might be paying a higher price than you were five years ago, but it's still the same three bed, two bath, one garage home. Exactly. The factor number three is this thing called inflation, where, you know, the government has been pumping money into the money supply, like at an unprecedented rate. And when that happens, just like availability of money in the lending market, printing of money injects money into the money supply and just makes money generally more available. So inflation has a real impact. It causes prices to go up, but not values. If I think back to the, the the house that my parents bought back in the 1960s, you know, they paid $42,000. Today, that house would sell for like $700,000. It's crazy. And it's the same house. It hasn't moved. It's not any bigger than it was. It's on the same street. It's not valued anymore. It's just gone up in price. That's right. And people look at that higher price and they think that's all appreciation. Well, maybe some of it's appreciation, but some of it is inflation. Exactly. And then the last item, the last factor, which does 
in fact drive value is that thing we started our conversation with, which is supply and demand. Why are prices in Manhattan so much higher than they are in Des Moines, Iowa? Not passing any judgment about one being better than the other, just prices are higher in Manhattan because the demand is there. That's it. So supply and demand is a big driver of price. If you can unpack those and separate out the four different factors, construction costs, availability of money, inflation, and supply and demand, I have a shot at really understanding the market and what's driving price. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just asking your realtor for comps, and who knows what that means. I really love that. Cost of construction, availability of money, inflation, and then fourthly, supply demand as factors that you need to consider. Well, Victor, where can someone learn more about you? You can visit me at my website at victorjm.com or connect with me either on Facebook or LinkedIn. I actually like to offer your listeners a magnetism scorecard. My book is called Magnetic Capital, and it's all about how to raise all the money you need for any worthy venture. And I've got a magnetism scorecard, which is a simple one-page tool that will allow your listeners to better understand how they're doing at attracting capital in terms of the fundamentals of attracting money, how magnetic are you in terms of attracting money. I think it would be extremely valuable for your listeners so they can come to victorjm.com and download that for free. And if they have any questions, I'm happy to engage in a dialogue with them and answer any questions they may have. So now you should better understand markets for your own turnkey investments, or you can connect with Victor and get his book about how to raise money. Or if you've got an idea, you can have Victor raise the money for you. Victor Manesh, thanks so much for coming back on to Get Rich Education. Thanks very much. Yeah, the market is more important than the property. Special thanks today to the talented Victor Manesh. You know, I just love how he talks about the concept of moving the line in a city neighborhood and more. Of course, you can find Victor's resources there in the show notes. Now, for the busy investor like you that's often interested in turnkey real estate investment, well, you don't have to be overwhelmed by all this stuff. You already have a provider in your select market that knows neighborhoods and knows areas. Your turnkey provider, they're incentivized to get that right because Unlike a sales agency that just sells primary residences to people, providers of turnkey investment property, they know that they're dealing with investors like you that make multiple purchases you're buying over and over. So turnkey providers are incentivized to get that right for repeat business. So to learn more about the markets that I'm visiting this week and to get some Florida turnkey property yourself, check out GetRichEducation.com slash Jacksonville for Jacksonville. And yes, of course, for Orlando, check out GetRichEducation.com slash Orlando for cash flowing properties in growing areas. You know, one reason that I'm here in Florida is that these providers, they actually have inventory right now with no waiting lists, or at least I know Jacksonville does and Orlando did at last check just a few weeks ago. So, and Florida is growing like crazy. People are moving south. I mean, that is just about the most predictable trend you could possibly think of. The cost of living is low here in Florida. And as an investor, you can get a strong ratio of rent income to purchase price. And another reason that people are moving to Florida is that, did you realize Florida is the only zero income tax state east of the Mississippi? 
The seven states with zero income tax are Alaska, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, Wyoming, and then finally, yes, here in Florida. Those are the seven. And there is nearly no income tax in Tennessee and New Hampshire. So Florida makes sense for a lot of reasons. Check out GetRichEducation.com slash Jacksonville and slash Orlando. For four guys that have been with me from the very beginning, which is just amazing, on behalf of Get Rich Education developers, John Collins and Marcus Whelan, sound engineer Vidran Jampo, web designer Nikon Roy, I'm your host, Keith Weinhold. I'll be with you next week from Orlando. Don't quit your daydream. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Get Rich Education, LLC, exclusively. Ranked by Forbes as one of the fastest-growing cities, Orlando, Florida has a big and diverse economy, yet still features affordable rental properties that cash flow. Our Boots on the Ground turnkey provider, Greg Bond, wrote a special report to help you discover the amazing market of Orlando. Request your free copy today. Visit GetRichEducation.com forward slash Orlando. That's GetRichEducation.com forward slash Orlando. The preceding program was brought to you by your home for wealth building, GetRichEducation.com.